There is a library that exists at the nexus where all other universes collide. Inevitably, things wind up there by mistake. Books, artifacts, people. This is the place where things from all universes end up when they get lost. This is the Eternity Archives. everyone, welcome to the Attorney Archives, and thanks for tuning in. This is an actual play podcast where we play interdimensional librarians, and each arc we try a different tabletop system. This week we're dipping our toes into Monster of the Week, and I will be your GM slash anchor, Kite. My pronouns are they, them, and uh, my fun fact this week is uh, I want a manic werewolf dream girl to whisk me away to a faraway magical land with uh, affordable healthcare. And these are my co-hosts, Dorka and Ziva. Hi, I'm Dorka. My pronouns are she, her. And this weekend I had a chance to go rock climbing for the first time since the pandemic started. That has nothing to do with tabletop gaming. I'm just really excited about it and really suffering for it today. Hi, I'm Ziva. Uh, My pronouns are she, her. My fun fact for this week is that my favorite cryptid is the Fresno Nightwalkers. And if you don't know what they are, please Google them immediately. They are really, really dumb walking pants, and I love them very much. I thought they were the zombies from Game of Thrones. They're a lot cuter than them, because the zombies from Game of Thrones are, are kind of ugly and uh, mean-looking, and I'm, I'm not a big fan. Yeah, these are just nice pants. Yeah, they're just cute pants with uh, sentient pants. They are neither ugly nor mean-looking. Yeah, I don't know anything about them. I'm just going to assume that they would like to put themselves around my naked legs and uh, keep me me warm (laughs) that seems roughly accurate really okay cool that's that's canon now Uh, (laughs) yeah Um, you you don't wear pants just fresno night walkers you know what i'm pretty excited about that it's always (laughs) it's it's like always having a friend with you yeah isn't there a DD monster that's like that are fresno night walkers just mimic but like they're like pants (laughs) mimics I don't know, but I need to immediately go post this theory on like Cryptid Reddit and see what people okay. have to say. Oh uh, yes, there's the uh, the Dungeons and Dragons cloaker, which just looks like a cloak. And does it eat you? Yeah. Oh. I think that anything that's like sentient, we'll just call them like blank mimics. So it's just like I think cars, you know, they're just vehicle mimics, right? Like the movies. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's horrifying. So before we kind of get into the rules, I did want to touch on something really quick, which was consent in role-playing games and tabletop games as well. It's a pretty straightforward concept that I think a lot of people don't pay attention to unless like they kind of call their attention to it, which is kind of indicative to society as a whole, but we won't get into that. This is a very brief overview of what this means exactly. 
tabletop role-playing games are mostly improv and you're going to be in like high stake high stress situations people may say or do things or they may get stuck in situations that are very stressful or maybe triggering to certain people and so to combat slash alleviate that is this concept of consent in role-playing games and there's actually different tools you can use to sort of assist you in that regard and uh, we'll put a link in the description one of the popular ones is called the X card, which is basically in like a physical setting, you have a little card with an X on it. And if anything ever comes up that you're not comfortable with, you just either flip the card over or you like tap the card and uh, no questions asked, you just move on from it. Another one is the kind of like a consent checklist. So basically you give the game a rating, like a movie rating, like is this G, PG, PG-13. And then there's like a long list of things maybe you'd be comfortable with or that you wouldn't be comfortable with. And this is sort of like a pregame thing just so everyone kind of knows what they're getting into. For this, we didn't really get into that detail just because we've all known each other for like over 17 years. So we are pretty comfortable with each other's kind of consent levels and stuff like that. But of course, if anything ever comes up that may be triggering or, or whatever, we'll of course put a description and content warning on the episode. With that being said, because this is kind of a real life-ish world, there may be things that could hit close to home for people. So that's just something to be aware of. Did you guys have anything to kind of add to that? Yeah, I think that's a really good like overview of the major forms of consent measuring in RPGs. I did just want to mention really quick that this isn't just something that's a responsibility of the GM. It's also a responsibility of the fellow players. I think sometimes people go into this thinking of the GM as like the boss or the wrangler of the table. But of course, these games are collaborative, right? And it's a lot more fun when everyone's on the same page and everyone has an understanding of the group dynamics. And so be nice to each other. Obviously, don't be an active jerk, but it's also a good idea when you're role playing with your friends or the other people in your roleplay group that you keep these same things in mind. You know, you might not want to spring something really dark and serious on another player without having had a chance to discuss it first. Or, of course, respect people if they're doing things like um, pulling the X card. I also wanted to give a huge, huge shout out to a lot of the people who've done a lot of work on consent in RPGs are people who are in the queer and indie parts of the tabletop RPG community, which I think is really great. And I think it's really important to point to them and really point to all the work that they've done to work on these different tools, including tools that don't involve individual players going to the GM and saying, like, here's the things that make me uncomfortable or having to play the X card in the middle of the table and then everyone at the table is aware that this is a triggering issue. There's lots of other nuanced ways to handle that. And if we wanted to go through all of those, it would take like a whole episode. Yeah. (laughs) There's so many really wonderful tools out there. So if this is something you're not familiar with, those are awesome places to start. But there's also a ton of work that a lot of queer tabletop folks have done to make sure that gaming can be as positive a space as possible for everybody, which I think is really awesome. And as the GM, you do have a little bit of responsibility to your players. You are in charge of making sure everyone has a good time, and the players have a part in that too. But as the GM, you're not supposed to be against your players. You're not trying to freak them out or throw them for a loop. Not out of character, at least. In character, absolutely. (laughs) But so like, you know, people have a wide range of things that they're comfortable and uncomfortable with, and it could be sexual content, or it could just be, no, I can't handle spiders, no giant spider enemies for me, please. And everyone around the table sort of has a responsibility to make sure that everyone is comfortable and having a good time at all times. 
Yeah, definitely. This seems like a straightforward topic, but because of kind of weird societal expectations and things that we haven't learned that maybe are, are like ingrained in our conscious, it is something that we need to work towards and be aware of. But kind of like the TLDR of everything is just respect people's boundaries. Like that's the number one thing. Respect people's boundaries and be open to any concerns they have. Anyway, so as I said earlier, we're going to play Monster of the Week, and we're starting off this episode with the uh, informative bits as well as character creation. So if you want to skip to the character creation portion, just go ahead and skip ahead to 50 minutes and 48 seconds. If you'd like to jump into the juicy playing bits, skip ahead to 58 minutes and 34 seconds. By the way, I will be mentioning things like playbooks and movesets, and all these can be found in the link that's uh, in the episode description, as well as some other resources. Monster of the Week is an urban fantasy game, uh, thematically in the same vein of shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Supernatural. It was created by Michael Sands, and it's based on the Powered by the Apocalypse system, which was developed by McGay Baker and Vincent Baker. You have one player who is the Keeper, which is short for Keeper of Monsters and Mysteries, which is uh, me, Kite, aka the Anchor, aka Rill. And the rest of the players are Monster Hunters, aka these uh, other goose on the pod. The big difference between Mon Week, which I'm going to make a thing because saying Monster of the Week every other sentence is going to be a pain in the butt. So the big difference between Mon Week and D20 games like D&D is that the only dice you'll be using are 2D6s. With Mon Week, the emphasis is very much focused on the narrative and creating a story with your friends. If you played a Powered by the Apocalypse game before, you've probably heard of the GM's agenda, which is as follows. 1. Make the world seem real. 2. Play to see what happens. And 3. Make the players' lives dangerous and scary. In particular, I'd like to point out the play to see what happens guideline. I have NPCs and places prepared, maybe some reactions in mind based on how I think the players will respond, but this is mostly going to be improv. So I haven't had any experience with Powered by the Apocalypse systems, and so I'm actually really excited to see how this goes. I feel like it's much more improv heavy than something like D&D, which is amazing because tabletop role playing as a whole is very improv heavy. But I think that it's a very dynamic and organic storytelling system. I'm just really excited. And I'm, of course, also really excited to get to just experience Powered by the Apocalypse. I've heard it before. Like I've heard other podcasts have played it, but I have never tried it myself. Um, I don't think I've ever observed friends play it. So yeah, I'm really excited to, to do something different. I'm only slightly bummed out by the fact that you only have 2d6 so i can't just obnoxiously stack them the whole game and then knock the tower over if you're only using d6s then you don't need to buy tons and tons of pretty dice which is good for your wallet but sad for my pretty dice dragon horde (laughs) i mean to be fair even if you don't use the pretty dice you can still buy them oh don't tell me that (laughs) (laughs) it's too late i've incepted your brain i've put that little seed in your your little gummy tissue inside your head yeah So I've played a few sessions of Monster Hearts, which is another Powered by the Apocalypse game. It's a little different from Monsters of the Week, because instead of hunting the monsters, you are the monsters, and you're also high schoolers. And my experience with that was, it was a fun system, but ultimately I did feel a little limited by the character recreation, and thus never really connected to my character, and I'm definitely going to talk about that later when we get into stuff. 
I'm very excited to try Monster of the Week, though. It seems like a really fun game, in spite of the fact that I've never been able to get into the genre that it's based on. That's right, I hated Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I will neither explain myself nor apologize. (laughs) Uh, Feel free to at Dorka. Um, (laughs) Tons of hate tweets, it's fine. I'm just kidding, I've never even watched Buffy. Or Supernatural, because I don't care about them either. (laughs) I love this genre. I love the little bit of X-Files I've seen. I watched Buffy. I watched Supernatural way after the point where it got bad. (laughs) I just finished watching Twin Peaks in the year of our Lord 2020. I love weird fiction and I love magic realism and that sort of like urban fantasy type thing. So, So I'm like doubly excited. I love urban fantasy as a genre, mostly books, because I feel like a lot of TV shows don't really cover it in the way that I like. But like, I got into like Teen Wolf, and I have a lot of opinions on that. I know a lot of people are going to be like, what the fuck, you like Teen Wolf, but you don't, you never tried Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Supernatural. And uh, what can I tell you except that I have shit fucking taste. (laughs) Teen Wolf, I wanted it to be good so badly, and it's not. Like, not dissing on people that like it because it's fun, but it was always, like, almost there. It was, like, being edged, you know? But oh. it never never got you all the way there, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now we're going to cover some of the actual game mechanics of Mon Week, uh, which are actually pretty straightforward. The book goes into detail about the parts of a mystery and what types of monsters there are, and honestly, this seems more intimidating than it actually is. All that stuff is just a way to help people plan out their story. So for instance, the monster type list has 12 types, and one of them is the beast. The motivation for the beast is to run wild, destroying and killing those around it. If you're to pick that type, then it'd help you lay out its plans and motivations more clearly. But if you already have a clear idea of what you want your monster to be, then it's not really necessary. And then on top of that, there's types lists like this for minions, bystanders, and locations in the book which describe these in more detail and are super helpful for you if you're struggling for a way to plan out your game. As I mentioned before, the focus for Powered by the Apocalypse systems is to play to see what happens, and that means don't sweat it too much on the prep work, which honestly, I should follow my own advice because I always sweat it on the prep work. Yeah, my thoughts on that basically boil down to um, improv is hard and GMing is advanced improv. You have to not only improv yourself, but also prepare and be able to adapt to what your idiot players are doing. Yep. I have a hard enough time improving as a player, which you will blessedly not see because I have the power to edit out all of my fumbling. But I had, what, nine pages of notes on our Dungeons and Dragons 5e session. And that was for a one-shot campaign where the outcome and direction was pretty much predetermined. For the game I run in person, I've written up pages and pages of like maps with info on different cities and locations, current events and NPCs that can be found there. And then for individual sessions, I write up two or three different possibilities for how things could go because I know my players will try to fight me if I just throw an option at them. (laughs) But that's just me. My partner, on the other hand, is a brilliant GM who can adapt to any situation on the fly with no preparation, so he would probably be great at Monster of the Week. And I would probably write out nine pages of script and dialogue. (laughs) See, yeah, that's the thing is like, I kind of try to do that, but I'm like, I don't know if they're ever going to stumble upon this because I've done that before when I GM Mon Week for my side group. I like had all this cool shit planned out. I had this like cool NPC they were supposed to find who was like the brother of the monster and it was going to 
give him backstory and make him like a sympathetic character. And they fucking speed ran my game. No. <laughs> they just went right in. Honestly, I should have killed them because they were not prepared for that fight. Because combat in Mon Week is very punishing because that's not necessarily the main focus. Because, you know, like all these different Monster of the Week shows, they find a weakness and then they fight the monster. Before then, if they fight the monster, they get their ass kicked. So, yeah, I, I should have killed them for it, but I didn't. I was nice because it was our very first session and they definitely caught me off guard because that was my first time GMing anything ever. And I have learned from it. Uh, I will kill you guys if you rush my fucking monster. <laughs> This will be a short campaign if you do that. So how many pages of notes have you prepared? I have seven documents. Oh. I have seven documents. Dang. Because I'm crazy and I like to organize by color and use tables and stuff like that. And then these documents in and of themselves, some of them are just one page. Some of them are just me ranting at myself. Talking about prep work and how to react to your players, one of the things I was really impressed with when I was looking through Monster of the Week is how many tools there are to kind of structure your world and help you prep in meaningful ways. Like I really loved the focus on motivations for locations and minions and monsters, but I really loved that. I really love the tag system and the fact that you can basically put anything you want in your game as long as you can come up with meaningful descriptives or tags for it. And I loved the overall focus on like the countdown and timelines and how to structure your world so it feels believable. And to give you sort of like a background to play off of, those are just really cool tools. You don't need to do as much prep work, but it gives you so much stuff that you can use in your prep work that I feel like really empowers you to more easily think about things on the fly. And I really appreciate that as someone who, when I used to GM when I was a teenager, I just got so mad all the time when my friends came up with wild shit to do. And the DM boot was a favorite tool of mine where I just like make people lose like one HP every time they wanted me to do something ridiculous, <laughs> which is a very bratty way to conduct a game. But that's what happens when you're like 16 and everyone's like, I want to roll for drunkenness. I feel called out right now. <laughs> <laughs> it was not. It was like everybody. It was every single person in that group. Wow, Dorka, have you rolled for drunkenness before with Ziva as the GM? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Thorica absolutely has. I've taken the DM boot before. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I just really, as someone who can get really overwhelmed by player stuff that's outside of what I was expecting, I really love how many tools are in Mon Week and Powered by the Apocalypse as a whole. So that's my thoughts on that. I just think the system's really creative. Yeah, totally. Like, as I mentioned before, it can seem super intimidating because there's like all this stuff like, oh no, I have to keep up track of all these things of like the monsters or keeper moves or whatever. But it's like, they're not strict rules. They're guidelines. They're there to sort of lead you along the adventure and like maybe give you inspiration. But they're not rules you have to remember. Like if you're a storyteller naturally, just do what comes to you naturally. What it's there is to sort of open your mind to these other options. So for instance, I read this Reddit post giving Keeper advice. And one of them was like, well, I don't really know how to like resolve combat. It seems really boring. We're just like switching hits. And because of the way combat works in uh, Mon Week, we'll get to that later. Uh, yeah, it's not super exciting because it's not like D&D. You don't have like dice rolls to see if you hit their 20 armor class or something. There's no like lots of numbers and crunching and like RPG kind of stuff. And by RPG, I mean like video games. And so the DM was like, if you do combat that way in Monster of the Week, then yeah, it's, it's going to be kind of boring. So, you know, you have to do things like, oh, if they attack this monster, then maybe something else 
you know, happens in another part of town as a result of them following through that action. It's just to like give you other ideas of what to do besides kind of focusing on what's in front of you. Did that make sense? <laughs> yeah. So I think if we're using D&D as a base, because everyone does, I feel like since this is a game is a lot less focused on numbers, I think it's generally easier for like a first time player, but I think it can be more difficult for a GM because if you're running a Dungeons and Dragons game, there are books and books full of monsters and situations and like all of the numbers and all of the roles. Whereas in Monster of the Week, the onus is much more on the keeper to create those things and sort of bring them out of their imagination. Yeah, I personally really love that this is a lot less crunchy and that combat's going to be a lot more fluid. But yeah, it definitely is a lot harder to think of your own creatures and your own scenarios than it is to be like, all right. We're in a dungeon. That's always a good step. There's a beholder. There's some goblin. These two goblins and then these two types of goblins. And I'm pulling them out of the book. And if I have to, I can like roll the table to figure out what random treasure is in these treasure chests. There isn't quite that same amount of structure here. And conversely, I think that might also be a good thing because it's like, yeah, you're right. I don't have item tables or whatnot. And, you know, the community as a whole for Mon Week is like not as big as D&D. So there's not necessarily a lot of like homebrew stuff that's already made for you out there either. But that's kind of like the beauty of it is I can do whatever the fuck I want. Like I could be like, uh, yes, you walk into Home Depot and you sneak <laughs> into the back room and, uh, you know, you roll, investigate a mystery or whatever. And then I could be like, okay, well, the employee catches you and or, and they kick you out. Or, you know, if you maybe roll super shitty, they'll like call the cops on you or something. Or maybe if you like roll really fantastic, it'll be like, uh, yes, this was actually the workshop of a wizard who protected this town. And when you dig into the unopened shipment boxes, there is a lawnmower that <laughs> runs on happiness and it does four damage and you can run over the monster. I don't have to worry about balancing. I just, I literally just made that up. I didn't even like write that in our script. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, and it's so, like, that's how it is. That's how it goes. And so like, that's kind of the beauty of that too. But yes, like if you're not going to improv, then it's definitely like, um, fuck, I don't know. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and you know, once again, this is a podcast. And as Dorka says, she can edit a bunch of stuff out and we have some pre-written scripts and things like that. So it will hopefully sound better. <laughs> than what what it comes off as when we're actually playing but like don't use edited podcasts as like your base for tabletop games like they don't have to sound polished when you're playing with your friends it can just be like stupid pauses and like ums and 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 it will be as people like figure out maths or like the gm is like i don't know what to do so give me five minutes Oh, definitely been there. <laughs> yeah. Like. <laughs> this reminds me of another thing that I really, really thought was cool about this is the emphasis on the game is a conversation and that there does need to be a back and forth between the keeper and the players. And that I think talking about things like pauses and ums and uh, breaking the magic a little bit of podcasting is that because it's a conversation, there's always naturally going to be a give and take. And it's important to remember that. And it's important to use that as a way to structure your game, especially with this system, I really appreciate that they 
emphasize that and that the system's built that way. I think sometimes people think that a good GM should be antagonistic and should be trying to beat the players. And there's definitely systems where that's more encouraged and systems that are much more brutal. And of course, games and settings and GMs and groups of people that prefer their, their games that way. But I think at least for the way that I personally feel about tabletop philosophy, the game is conversation is really important. And I think really cool that this system is built explicitly to be like, the goal isn't to have a sick ass werewolf come through and fucking obliterate everybody. The goal is to make this really cool show basically about badasses fighting monsters. And sometimes that means a sick ass werewolf shows up and kills everybody, but that's not the goal. The real werewolf is the friends we made along the way. Ugh. <laughs> But no, I definitely agree with that philosophy-wise. And that is something that is specifically called out in Monwick, is that you want to be a fan of your players. Like as Siva said, you know, you're telling a story, but it does explicitly call out, you're not trying to fuck over your players, you're, you're trying to tell a dope story. And if that means they get fucked over because that's like the cool thing that happens, then yeah. But like, you're not here to make their play experience bad. And I also think that that goes for players too, that like the goal isn't to be an asshole and stump your GM so that they have no idea what to do or mess up your keeper, but just to like circle back to like, sometimes your GM is improving and sometimes they got to take a break and don't listen to polished media as your definition of role-playing success. It's good to just like keep that in mind. It is a conversation. It's a team, uh, admittedly a weird unbalanced team because one person is kind of in charge, but that conversation is really important. I just think it's neat. That was like a really good way of like summing up how I feel about tabletop games. Definitely. Yeah. TLDR, it's a pretendy fun times with your friends. So don't be a jerk. <laughs> so I guess speaking as kind of a jumping off point about how you're talking about prep work, the kind of basic prep work you'll need as a keeper is you're going to need a hook, which is like the cold open in a TV show where someone gets murdered by like a blurry static cryptid in the woods. Then the hunters somehow get pulled in on it to solve the mystery. The keeper has a mystery countdown where they're keeping track behind the scenes of when the monster will strike next, depending on whether the hunters stop them or not. And on top of that, the monster has a specific weakness, which we also mentioned you can't just like run in and like punch the werewolf in the face because you have like super strong, big muscles because that's not how that works because werewolves have a weakness. And also that would make a very boring story. Uh, so not only do they have to figure out where the monster will be attacking next, you also have to figure out what hurts them, or they're going to survive despite any damage it takes. I think the cool thing about Monster of the Week is that sort of like episodic format. It really encourages like one session play, whereas a lot of times in other games, it's this long overarching thing taking place over many, many sessions. And some sessions have like action and some really don't. Monster of the Week, it sort of encourages you to kind of do all that there is to do in one sit down session and still offers like a lot of variety for what you can do. And it also does have the structure for you to evolve over time and for certain aspects of your character to come out. It's really cool, I think, how they do the meta world building here in terms of how your characters know each other and how they relate to each other and how they can change over time while still really encouraging drop-in, drop-out play. And there is even a really cool thing in the expansion that Kite is using as well, where it talks specifically about how to adapt your games for casual play, like at lunch at work. How do you build a world and how do you build adventures so that people can drop in and out for like half hour sessions 
which I think is great. That's like the coolest consideration is like, how do we make this as accessible as possible to everyone? And of course, accessibility in that case, meaning like how easy it is to jump in and out, not necessarily disability accessibility. But I just think that that's really cool that that was a consideration of like, how can you be a good keeper to a whole bunch of people, some of whom can show up every session and some of whom are only going to drop in and out here and there. Because it's so hard to get a group of people who can commit to like playing for six hours every couple weeks. Or even every week. Like games will get canceled at the last second and like all this stuff where people just can't make it because of real life obligations. So just being like, hey, are people ready to play a game for two hours or something? And then it's not necessary. Like that's super awesome because being an adult sucks. It is it is not <laughs> cool like Mon Week where I get to punch werewolves in the face or run them over with magic lawnmowers. Uh, it's quite the opposite. The werewolf runs over me with magic lawnmowers. And the magic lawnmowers are called taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was already quarantined before all this 2020 stuff happened because there is a werewolf outside my house with a lawnmower just watching me <laughs> at all times. If it's listening to this podcast, hello. You will not beat me. <laughs> I will outlast you. <laughs> also in this format of play, you're not like screwed over because your healer couldn't show up to a session or yeah. the like. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of the prep work for the keeper slash GM. And then this next part is kind of equal parts on the players slash hunters as well as the keepers. So for the actual number bits of Mon Week, this comes in in regards to like stats and equipment. For equipment, there's generally armor and weapons, but you could honestly make up whatever you wanted. Re the magical lawnmower that does four harm. I can even make up tags for it now. What would it be? It'd be loud, handheld, maybe? Messy. <laughs> oh, messy for sure. Yeah. So there you go. Magical lawnmower. That's a freebie for you guys. So balance isn't really an issue when it comes to Mon Week because there aren't all those numbers and combat isn't a focus of the game. It's just a way to move the story forward. So as we did as an example just now, gear is made up of two parts. How much harm they cause or block in the case of armor and their relevant tags. For our lawnmower, for instance, it, it's two harm, hand, heavy, messy, loud. That's actually just matches the tags of the chainsaw, which I had actually put as an example. So that kind of works out. <laughs> um, so the tags describe the weapon. So for example, if I went out to fight that werewolf on my lawn and I somehow seized the lawnmower from its grasp, all my neighbors would be alerted because the engine would have started revving of the lawnmower. And also there would be werewolf bits all over the front yard. My landlord slash roommate would not be happy. And and also I would probably get the HOA called on me. There's no way to do that secretively if this was like the Mon Week scenario we were going with. And so then I would have to kind of deal with the consequences of that. Like, fuck, now I have to deal with the HOA. I need to figure out how to deal with my neighbors. That's kind of like how it would move the story forward. It would be me trying to decide how to deal with the HOA and me trying to decide <laughs> how to deal with my neighbors. That sounds like a fun game. That's kind of how a story would move forward from there. See, that, like easy peasy made that just up on the spot. Now I have three directions to take this at. <laughs> so now for the fun part, character creation. In Mon Week, as we mentioned before, you don't have classes, you have playbooks, and these are just character archetypes from the Monster of the Week trope. 
Uh, there's a lot. So there's 12 in the base book, 11 extras that you can find on their website, and four in the expansion book. So we're not going to be able to cover all of that because that's 37 playbooks. That's a lot. <laughs> now, because these are character archetypes as well, you can only have one of each in your group. It's not, you know, once again, like class-based systems where it's like you could have like a party full of bards. I want to take a second now to uh, compare and contrast playbooks to like classes like you see in Dungeons and Dragons. In Dungeons and Dragons, you have a handful of classes and those classes each have a few different ways you can choose to build them to result in wildly different play styles. Like you could have a party of bards because you could have bards from all different colleges. And so each of your bards are specializing in different things. Some bards are good at football. Some bards <laughs> are good at college. Or college. <laughs> Some bars are good at uh, soccer. <laughs> in Monster of the Week, since you're playing the archetype rather than the class, on the surface, it seems like it could be a little bit more limiting. Like your playbook decides your stats rather than giving you the freedom to kind of pick and choose what you want to be good at. Like there are some archetypes out there that can't get their charm rating up to plus three. They just can't, no matter what. So instead of thinking about a character and then choosing their abilities to reflect that, Monster of the Week playbooks kind of seem to do that the other way around. Like you're literally building your character's personality, background, and history as you create your sheet. So on its face, it seems like there's potential to lose some versatility there. Of course, like most games, Monster of the Week does continually stress that you can and should feel free to tweak things. And we talked about that a little bit with the wild lawnmower example. <laughs> And while the versatility of Dungeons and Dragons classes can lead to a lot of overlap, the Monster of the Week playbooks are very distinct to the point where character creation is literally different for every playbook. Like, the Chosen gets to create a unique weapon, and the Spellsinger's the only one casting combat spells. So while most classes in Dungeons and Dragons can be tweaked for whatever utility you need, Mon Week playbooks offer truly unique playstyles. Essentially, this is a long way to say that if you're the sort of person who likes to create a character in your head and then build the mechanics around that template, you might, as a knee-jerk reaction, feel kind of restricted by the playbook. You can't start out as a werewolf-wizard cultist with a criminal past. You kind of just have to pick one of those things. But if you're newer to tabletop RPGs and might feel overwhelmed with all the character creation work that goes into games like Dungeons & Dragons, Monster of the Week can do all of that work for you and help you create a badass monster hunter from scratch. Yeah, I was about to say that's one of the things that I actually really love about the playbooks is that I like different types of character creation depending on how I'm feeling. But I really love how straightforward and how, again, accessible this is. I could give this playbook to someone who's never played a tabletop game before. And with very little instruction, they could be able to create a whole character. I need to explain some of the stats and like the point of the game, but this makes it a lot easier to pick up and play. It makes it a lot easier to play with people who've never played before. It makes it a lot easier to kick things off. Like you don't have to, you know, spend hours and hours thinking of the unique backstory of your drow wizard. You're just kind of like, I'm a spooky and I can like play in that space. And there's plenty of room to play, but you know, you have as the baseline and then you can kind of build around that as Dorka mentioned. So I personally, I, I really like that because I really like how straightforward it is that there's like a dozen things on the sheet to pick from and you pick them and then you're like, great, this is who I am and this is how I can play moving forward and this is what I have available to me. You don't have to like pull out your giant rule book and flip through everything to try and figure out what you're working with. Yeah, totally. I think kind of to Dorka's point though, I would actually argue that you could be all those things. You would just have to 
to decide which is the playstyle you actually want. Like, if you want to emphasize the criminal part of your character versus the werewolf part, you could pick the criminal playbook, but then, like, the werewolf parts would just be, like, flavor. And not mechanical. Yeah. Because, like, for instance, Rill was kind of hard to fit into the D&D-verse because even though they are from a D&D kind of universe, they are very much, like, kind of a modern-day Zoomer type. You know, none of these adventuring classes really fit them as a person because <laughs> that's not really the world they live in. So without doing a lot of homebrew, I had to basically kind of fudge it. Whereas in like Monster of the Week, I could maybe make them like still a uh, like demon type person, but that wouldn't be like their playbook. They would pick something else. I can't remember which playbook I would pick, but I'm sure there is something that <laughs> is for like the person who likes to stay inside and be on the computer all day. That's just kind of how I think about it. Like, if there's something you want to do, you could always just decide, do you want this to be a mechanical thing or, like, a flavor thing? There is opportunity to improve and change things around as your character gets more powerful. Like, I noticed that when you mark experience and level up, you get the opportunity to borrow unique moves from other playbooks. That kind of gives you the power to kind of take on some of the aspects of completely different archetypes. Yeah, you also get the opportunity to change your hunters to new types or create a second hunter or just basically add more moves if you'd like, depending on how much leveling you do, which I I think is very cool. Like I know like multi-classing is not like an unheard of concept, but it's neat that you have the ability to go everything from like, I'm completely changing this character to like, I'm just adding some fun bonus stuff. I'm just having some fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to say to this? Not on this note. Yeah, I think let's let's forge ahead. All right. So with character creation, that is you have to pick like the attributes and stuff like that, which the book does kind of offer you pre-decided stats that you can just choose from. But what I wanted to say to Dorka's point where like there are certain books you can't add up to three charm for, you could probably also just like add up the amount of points that are on those pre-baked stats and then just like distribute them how you want. Obviously, that's for keeper discretion, um, but that's just something to keep in mind as well. As I kind of mentioned, they really walk you through the playbooks, as Eva was saying. Like, it's very easy to pick up for people who maybe aren't the most tabletop or, like, RPG-minded. So starting with that, the stats in Monweek are Charm, Cool, Sharp, Tough, and Weird. These affect how much you add to your roles when you make moves in the game. So to explain moves more, I'm going to go back to what I mentioned about Monster of the Week being more narrative focused. In D&D, when you want to make a perception check, you could just ask your DM like, hey, I want to find out what I see in this room. Can I roll a perception? And then your DM might be like, okay, well, where are you looking? Like, how are you looking? Or something like that. But, you know, other times they might just be like, yeah, go ahead and roll. In Mon Week, the process is a bit flipped because instead of announcing what you want to do, you, you just do it. And then, for example, if you want to investigate a room you just describe it instead of being like hey i want to roll to see what i see instead you say i look around and i want to see what i can find in this bedroom and in the keeper i can decide if i just want to like give you that information or i could make you roll for a move in this case i'd probably ask for an investigate a mystery roll because that's kind of another thing they call out in the book is like don't necessarily make your players roll for something just because like it's a game and you should make them roll you have to do like what makes 
sense for them. So like if you are like this super cool, experienced private eye or something and you're investigating the crime scene and there's like a footprint in the bedroom, I'm not going to make you like, hey, roll to see if you can see that footprint. You know, like you just know you're just going to see it. I'm just going to give you that information. Yeah, and like I've definitely been in Dungeons and Dragons games before where something that should be fairly easy for my character demands a roll and I get a crit fail and end up looking like an idiot and that doesn't always feel great. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't like make sense for your character. I also really like in the book that they point out to the players that it's important to also make the move. So something that can be a huge negative about D&D is that you end up saying a lot of things like, I roll for initiative, I roll a perception check, I come into the room and I roll for athletics. And this really encourages you to use descriptive language and, uh, you know, paint your word picture about it. So instead of I roll for athletics, you're like, I come into the room and I talk and do a dive to try and get under the security laser or whatever. And I think that that's A, way more fun to listen to and B, way cooler to really kind of encourage that language. You can absolutely do that in D&D, but I think that because it is crunchy and numbers focused, it's really easy to fall into that trap. And I know I definitely have fallen into that trap before and it's just not as exciting and fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. So for example, for that investigate a mystery role, I would not make you roll for the stupid footprint. I would make you roll for something else that maybe I wanted to hide from you in in that bedroom. In Mon Week, the dice you roll are 2d6s. Anything six or below is a failure and something bad happens. Seven and nine is a mixed success, which means you get what you wanted, but at a cost. And a 10 plus is a success with a bonus or like an overwhelming success and you just get what you were looking for. But when you get higher leveled, you can actually pick a trait that lets you get advanced successes, which are 12 pluses, and those are even like even better successes. I love systems that have mixed successes. Oh yeah, definitely. That's another thing. You can absolutely do that in Dungeons and Dragons, but generally as the rules are, you're just trying to hit a target number, and above that you succeed and below that you fail. Yeah, I honestly, I find mixed successes as a player really cool. I think as a keeper, I'd find them a little bit intimidating because I only have like the same like three bad things I can think happen when (laughs) rolls go wrong and it's usually you fall on your ass, which is not like meaningful in Mon Week. So I think it's a very cool system and I personally would have to write a list of like 10 mixed successes I can just throw in there. Of course, if you're like wrapped up in the story, it's a lot easier to think of those. But that's like a particular improv block that I have. So that's like a little intimidating for me, even though I think it adds so much richness to the world. Yeah, definitely. Kind of to mix it all together with the stats and the moves, each stat has a move it's correlated to. So charm affects manipulate someone, cool affects act under pressure and help out, Sharp affects investigate a mystery and read a bad situation. Tough affects kick some ass and protect someone. And weird affects use magic. There are alternative moves supplied by the expansion book, and you can take a look at them in more detail on the website linked because I believe they provide like a little cheat sheet for all the moves. But for now, I'm just going to cover the basic moves since those are probably the ones we're going to use the most. So on the character sheet past the stat blocks are little luck boxes. And what luck is, it lets you bump a roll up to max or avoid harm from an injury. And the more you use it, the more the keeper can cause shit to go against you. And then when you use up all your luck, you're doomed and the keeper can just like screw you over. Because in the fiction, you have no more luck. 
I think it's fun because like the luck lets you just say, I'm going to pass this roll. Yeah. I played some other systems that have stuff similar to that where you can just say, no, I, the player, decide that this does not happen. I actually really like that because it gives you as the player a lot of agency, even if it does result in consequences down the line. It lets you pay your consequences forward. I think that just does a lot for like the rule of cool. That's what Mon Week is about. It's about rule of cool. It's about making a cool story and feeling cool and getting very emotionally evolved into like the fiction and whatnot. There's also, depending on the playbook you're using, specific playbook-related issues that come up when you run out of luck that I think also add some richness to the universe. Because what being doomed looks like looks different for a lot of the characters. So it's not even just like, well, when you run out of luck, the GM or the Keeper can just do mean stuff to you. It's also that, for example, spoiler alert, I'm playing the spooky. If I run out of luck, the bad side of my character's powers come out and I have to deal a lot with that consequence instead of just being able to use those powers which that like adds a lot more flavor to the individual archetypes yeah so after luck are the experience boxes obviously experience is how you level up uh you get it experience when you fail a roll so that's a six or below whenever a move tells you to and at the end of the mystery in the book it will specifically lay out like did you meet this goal did you meet this goal and then you use that to tally up how much experience your character gets I love the idea that you gain experience as you fail rolls. For one thing, it takes some of the sting out of what could be a really bad situation, but it also just actively encourages you to try things that you're not optimized for. Like, in Dungeons & Dragons, if you don't have proficiency in persuasion, you're not incentivized to ever try and roll for it, especially if someone in the party has better stats for that. Whereas in this, like, you're literally learning from your failures. And since there are only five experience points between each improvement, you can basically constantly gain new perks for your character by accepting failure. Yeah, I think that it's a really cool bonus of this system. And I think it's a nice reflection of real life. So now in Mono Week, the stats are very pruned down, which in my opinion is nice because in D&D, it's kind of like, what is the point of having a 15 dex versus like a 14 or 16? I'm trying to think, I don't think it really does anything because what you actually want is that ability modifier, right? Like that's the most important part. You only benefit from even numbers. Yeah, yeah. And I I guess I can get it from like a um, game balance thing, but still, I I think that's silly. And I feel like they could that down a little bit more. In Mono Week, the stats vary from negative one to plus three. So negative one means you're terrible at it. Zero is average. Plus one means above average. Plus two is above above average. <laughs> and plus three is you're fucking amazing at it. So what, what what are you guys plus three in in real life, do you think? Or negative one? <laughs> I'm negative one in just like theoretical rock climbing. I think if I ever went rock climbing with Dorka, I would just like pull up like one rock and then just lay on the floor. (laughs) Same though. I'm a plus three at random trivia that no one cares about. Do Do you have one on hand? Give us a roller coaster fact. Oh boy, you asked the exact right question. There has only ever been one Bollinger and Mabillard coaster that has been dismantled ever. Every single coaster they've built has, is still standing, except for Dragon Challenge at Universal. There's your fun fact for the day. I didn't even understand some of those words. <laughs> is that like a roller coaster making company? Yeah. Oh, okay. They're my favorite manufacturer. Have I been on any of their roller coasters? Yes. You've been on Alpengeist and Apollo's Chariot? Yeah. Yeah, you've been on their roller coasters. They're good roller coasters. Why did that one roller coaster get dismantled? How many people did it kill? 
It didn't kill anybody, <laughs> uh, but J.K. Rowling didn't like it. She doesn't like a lot of things. Oh my gosh. She ruins everything she I know. touches. I know. We do not endorse J.K. Rowling on this podcast. Uh, no turfs allowed yeah. on this podcast. Nope. What about you, Dorka? What are you plus three and minus one at? Oh, I don't know. Like rock climbing, I'm definitely not a plus three at. Well, okay, what would you be at, at rock climbing then? Probably a plus one. Okay, that's that's pretty good. That's, yeah, it's pretty great. I don't know what I'm a plus three in. Ask David. What does David say? Hey, David, what am I really good at? If David says be a wife, I'm going to throw up. David says arts and crafts. Okay. That's fair. Which I'm working on a chainmail inlay right now, so that might be true. What about you, Kite? Oh, shit. It got turned around on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a negative one in most things. That's kind of the easy part. No. <laughs> I'm a plus three at collecting anime waifus. Uh, but like in a not lewd way, because I feel like <laughs> a lot of people, maybe they're like plus one or plus two, but I think they can never really reach that plus three because they're fucking degenerates. And, <laughs> and I'm not, mostly. <laughs> it's that extra bit of wholesomeness that yeah. yes. bumps you up to the plus three. Yeah, that's the uh, the plus one is from respecting women. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. So for example, if you were like investigating a mystery on that bedroom, let's say you have a plus one to sharp. And if you roll a 10, which is fantastic, and you get a plus one, then it's 11. So if you're a hunter who hasn't taken the advanced success skill yet, 10 is the highest you can get. So uh, that means you get two questions you can ask. After that, on the character sheet, there's going to be some playbook-specific things to check off. Like, the Chosen has to pick out how they found out about their fate and their heroic and their doom tags. And those are, like, what dictate how their fate unfolds. And then after that is the introduction period, where the book provides a list of suggested ways your hunters know each other. So I think that character creation is like really an experience in and of itself in Monster of the Week. And it was similar when I played Monster Hearts, as I think it really is a unique feature of the Powered by the Apocalypse system. My preference for Dungeons and Dragons is to usually have a sort of session zero for character creation and discussion, whereas Powered by the Apocalypse kind of makes it mandatory. You have to build your characters together at the same time because you decide as a group like what the connections between your characters are, which creates great hooks for drama right away. Like in Monster of the Week, you're a monster hunting team and you decide together how all of your characters know each other. And I really like that because it drives in the point that your character doesn't just appear out of nowhere. They have history and other people are aware of that history. That kind of eliminates the sort of tavern party problem that Dungeons and Dragons can have, where you just have this uncoordinated group of people all traveling together for some undefined reason. They just <laughs> met at a tavern. <laughs> I really love the focus on groups uh, in Monster of the Week. And I can't speak to other Powered by the Apocalypse systems um, because I haven't tried them. But this one really focuses on rich group storytelling and so in addition to your history you also have the theme of your monster hunting team so whether you're like a supernatural style family out for vengeance or you're a buffy style like odd group kind of pulled together by you know all being in high school together or you know you're the x-files and you're a secret organization looking for monsters i don't know i just think it's it's a really good way to get the group all on the same page like right out the gate which of course, also encourages everyone to like play nicely together and think of themselves as a unit as opposed to only focusing on their character. Your character's part of something bigger, which I think it's like a really good way to set things up. I know there's definitely like friends I've had who have D&D &D groups and they have like that one friend or one player in their group who is just like, I am the Naruto of this campaign and everything is about me doing cool shit. And it's like, well, that's not 
fun for uh, anyone. <laughs> yeah. Or you have, like, two people in the party who are just diametrically opposed. Yeah, that's another thing I learned from my first Mod Week game, was that, like, beyond the connections, you need to have a reason why they would want to work together. Like, they have to have the same goals as well, so it's like, they know each other's secrets or something like that. But that doesn't necessarily mean, like, now you want to be a monster hunter, so you kind of have to also take it a step further. You definitely have to make a focus on, like, why do you want to work together? And that's just a general tabletop RPG advice there because that's just more fun it's just more fun when you have people who want to work together and want to play together yeah absolutely but yeah so now that we kind of got all that explanation out of the way there a lot of a lot of rambling on our part but thank you for sticking through or thank you for skipping ahead if that's what you chose to do you are still valid and we love you dorka and ziva will introduce their playbooks and how they decided to pick what for their characters For Linda, I went with the spooky, which I think is a little not necessarily what you would think of. I debated going with the mundane because I think that is like a good description of Linda on the holes. She's just kind of like a normal person, but like selfishly, I thought that was a little more boring. Not that the mundane is not a valid playbook because it totally is and you can do really fun stuff with it, but I just wanted to do something kind of different. So I went with a spooky with a big focus on telepathy and like communicating with monsters as well, because that's like if Linda was magically granted magic powers and she's so, so like charismatic and really cares about things like people's secrets. I think that it makes a ton of sense for her to have psychic telepathic powers. And so, of course, I went with the charm heaviest rating. So plus two charm and plus two weird. The only thing that sort of bummed me out about that particular rating was that cool is zero. And I think probably realistically Linda would have a more cool. But it makes sense for me personally to put the most points in charm for her just because she's very charming. She's nice to people and she loves to talk with them and she's really good at manipulating someone. The downside of the spooky is that you have a dark side that, you know, one day is going to like take over a la Dark Willow style. And so for Linda, her tags for her dark side are secrets, guilt, and paranoia with the idea of like she's carrying around lots of people's secrets she's sometimes using her telepathy when people don't know it she feels guilty about that and then just paranoid about whether or not other people can hear her thoughts as well so i just think that this is like a fun different way to take linda it's definitely darker than maybe i could play in this universe but i think that's one of the benefits of monster of the week is that you can absolutely play it a little bit darker and it even makes sense with someone like linda uh, when you say she'd be more cool, you do mean personality-wise, interest-wise? Because she doesn't know what a dab or a Fortnite is, so... <laughs> are we operating under the impression that those are cool things now? <laughs> I do think she'd probably be really good at helping out, because I think she's very much like a support person. And so I think zero cool is maybe not like the most accurate representation, just because I think she really puts a lot of energy into helping others. But plus charm made the most sense here. Yeah. All right, Dorka, you're up. So as I mentioned before, in my opinion, Monsters of the Week isn't really designed to be able to slot a playbook over a pre-existing character. Not many of the playbooks really fit Zen perfectly. A large part of that is that she's not human, which did ultimately lead me to the Monstrous playbook. The Monstrous is the half-human, half-monster member of the team, and it has like this vibe of potential evil and being right on the edge of snapping at any moment. Is that Zen? Not really, but I was determined to keep her at least partially reptilian for this game. (laughs) 
So when I was picking her ratings, every option for the monstrous uh, has plus three weird, which is also not very zen because weird is used almost exclusively for using magic, which zen is not adept in. Most playbooks don't give you the option for a plus three in anything right off the bat, and here the monstrous is having you take plus three in Zen's most uncharacteristic trait. But I did work around that, and we'll get to that. This does also mean that the rest of her stats trended lower, and unfortunately, charm and tough, which would probably be the two I associate most strongly with her, were at odds with each other. So if you want, I have two options for you. You can either look in the Tomb of Mysteries and pick one of the alternate weird moves which is not something addressed in the base book because I think they also realize, well, what if my person's like weird but they don't use magic? So you can pick one of those or if you want, I'll let you switch weird with uh, tougher cool. I'll definitely go with picking an alternate weird move because I did work around the stat issue. Okay, okay. So I chose the loadout with plus two tough, and that means that her charm got tanked to negative one. But that's okay and ultimately justified because even if she's like, really charming where she's from, on a more mundane world, people might find her a little unsettling, and I decided higher tough was more important. The Monstrous actually has like a lot of work you have to do, because the next feature of the Monstrous is I had to pick a Monstrous breed for her, and they give you options of some like basic breeds like vampires and werewolves already listed out, but the playbook lays out all the options for you and encourages you to create your own, so I really was able to just shape her however I wanted. So they do have a curse. Zen is pretty driven by emotion, which fits well with the pure drive curse, which states that since they're driven by an emotion, they must act on it when the opportunity presents itself. Because the monstrous has sort of a sinister edge to it, most of the options for pure drive are pretty dark and negative. Like, Zen's a little feral and chaotic, but things like hate and cruelty wouldn't really fit with her. I decided that lust made the most sense, uh, because she can definitely be a little amorous and easily distracted. When you say lust, do you mean like a lust for indulgent things or specifically like attractive people? I would describe it as both of those. Okay, fantastic. Kind of just indulgent and hedonistic. So horny for Halloween, but I don't want to fuck a pumpkin. Right. But also you want to fuck the pumpkin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So next I had to pick natural attacks for her, which was very easy. I just gave her teeth and claws. <laughs> then as part of the breed, you get to pick two special monstrous moves. So the first one I took is unnatural appeal, which lets Sen use her weird stat instead of her charm stat when she manipulates someone. Ooh. So since that's all charm is really used for, this effectively negates her low charm value. So I'm actually more charming than Linda. Oh. <laughs> but I think in kind of a... You know, and settling where... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's the song E.T. by Katy Perry, I guess, <laughs> but about a lizard instead of an alien. <laughs> So then I also took Unquenchable Vitality, which means that whenever Zen takes harm, I can roll to immediately heal either one or two harm, depending on how well I do. Oh man. On a missed roll, injuries worsen. This roll uses the cool stat, which Zen has a negative one in. So is it risky? Yes. Ill-advised? Maybe. But in character? Absolutely. We go big or we go home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's way more yeah. fun this way. Uh, do you have any gear here? Oh, I have a shotgun and a big knife. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have a huge sword. Of course you have a huge sword. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what did you end up choosing as your alternate weird move for Zen? Okay, so while we were talking about it, I looked through the book and I'm going with trust your gut instead of use magic. That means I get to roll weird when I'm consulting my instincts about what to do next. Oh, see, here's an interesting part is at the bottom it says your gut feelings will point you somewhere important but they do not care about your conscious concerns to your gut the current mystery is just one important thing amongst many i'm gonna trust my gut it's gonna lead us to denny's (laughs) (laughs) i need some pancakes um all right then i guess uh why don't we start playing unless you guys have anything else to add no let's jump in i'm pumped yeah all right so i guess let's just get into it so it's been a few weeks since we as a group returned from the Skull Crag. Sensing things have been pretty peaceful for our group at least. The library or whoever's in charge hasn't given us any more assignments, so we've been allowed to just explore the library and really get used to it as a home even further. So what did Zen and Linda do during this time period? Like where have they really been like hanging out? For Linda, I think she's been a little bit bummed that there wasn't like an employee orientation or anything like that. Like she's used to when she joins a new place, like everyone has like the luncheon where the boss goes and gets like Subway or something kind (laughs) of a bummer and everyone sits in the conference room and is like, hi, Linda, welcome. And she like loves that kind of thing because it's a really good way to get to like overview everybody and meet a whole bunch of people at once and who doesn't love a free sandwich. So because there's not like really anything like that in the library, she has been determined to make something of it. For a little bit, she was just kind of like wandering around, seeing who she saw, kind of trying to introduce herself. But the library is enormous. It's huge. And so it's hard to like find the same person more than once. And it's hard to run into people doing fun stuff. So she really is only close. I mean, you know, as close as she is with anyone with Zen and Rel. And so she was determined, since this is a library, to start a book club. And so Linda's been posting flyers everywhere for the book club. She has been looking up some really good like little finger food recipes like pastry pups and all sorts of little snackums and dips and stuff like that. And so she held her first book club meeting. And do you all think that Rill and Zen were there? Zen was absolutely there. Uh, Rill would be there only because Linda in- invited them. I think that Linda would just be like completely beside herself that her two friends showed up to support her in her book club. And then like the three other people who saw the flyers who were also librarians, they probably were a little confused about who the hell Linda was. But as usual, Linda, like, you know, really politely introduced herself and she had the group do some icebreakers and she fed them all her super good sausage party dip and her little pastry pups and probably some lemon powdered cookies or whatever. And she was like really, really happy with the outcome. She hopes that a whole bunch more people come. She's definitely going to put up more flyers because she keeps finding herself in places that she's never seen before and being like, oh, this is a great opportunity. And she's, of course, really happy that Zen and Rill came because she was like, it's such a nice bonding experience for us. Yeah, Rill's just sitting there with like knees up on the chair and they have like a little plate of food kind of like bouncing on their knees and like the hood drawn, but there's like a little space hole for like their mouth. So it's just (laughs) kind of like, yeah, it's just them like just vacuuming in through this small slit in the hoodie. (laughs) So Zen's just been 
making her way through the library, opening pretty much every door she can find. A few times that's uh, backfired on her when she's opened the door and some sort of horrible eldritch abomination has bounded out at her, but uh, fortunately every time you see her she's carrying some sort of different weapon. No one's really sure where she's finding them or where they get off to when she's finished with them, but she can afford to open random doors and get attacked by random eldritch monsters. Oh my god. She's found a couple of like gymnasium spaces in the library where she lifts weights or spars with some of the other more physically minded librarians. One of them taught her some crossfit and she wouldn't shut up about it for a few days, but <laughs> she also Zumba. Yeah. <laughs> She also uh, is easily distracted and moves on to other things pretty quickly, so she's not deep into the CrossFit culture, fortunately. But she's seemed to make friends with pretty much everyone she can, but she has bonded the most with her team. She went to book club. Whether or not she actually read the book was pretty questionable. She had some comments, but they didn't all entirely make sense. She's always sure to wake up real when she finds a good source of pancakes, and I think she's <laughs> tried her hand at baking with Linda a little bit. Oh my god, that's adorable. Oh my god, they absolutely all bake together. That sounds so fun. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like Linda finds a good recipe and she tracks you all down to be like, you guys want to make this this week? And you make, like, rainbow cakes. And Linda's turn out beautifully and Zen's look like something off of Nailed It. <laughs> <laughs> and they can take pictures and, like, they have a little pit, like a bulletin board Aww. with, like, little Oh, uh, I'd love that! <laughs> Uh, Rill would just be like, uh, you know what? It still tastes delicious. <laughs> I'm gonna make this a little sad for a second. I think Rill definitely misses, like, their family. Like, at first they were trying to get away from their family. And since now it's been probably more than a month and a half, maybe more like two months since they've entered the library. So they're used to having a very rambunctious household where it's like their parents their older siblings their older siblings spouses a few animals in like the house it's a very big house and so obviously in a space like that they don't get much quiet time which is kind of why they wanted to get out but now it's just kind of a little almost too lonely because it's not like the library is barren i imagine it's pretty bustling right with like lots of people and whatnot i think it's kind of weird and strange enough that it's still pretty quiet yeah, I feel like there's a lot of people, but they're all in different places because I'm not sure the library like makes sense as a continuous space. So what about like common areas, like eating areas, or are there just multiple eating areas and it's like you never know which one you're going to walk into? I think that. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so Rill's definitely like, they just don't want to leave their room, but at the same time, they're just like, they crave contact. <laughs> That's why they would definitely be up for like hanging out with Linda I mean, Zen, they might even, like, follow you to the gym occasionally. They might have been there with you when <laughs> you've opened a couple doors to Eldritch Abominations and CrossFit. <laughs> Most Eldritch of all sports. I think on their own, though, they probably just try to find the video game room and just hang out there. And they've definitely, like, rented out, you know, Universe 64B's version of a, of a Switch. They're kind of going through the game library on that. So, as I said, it's been a few weeks since Skullcrag. 
we all have been kind of getting used to the rhythm and routine of the everyday life of the library. It's definitely hard to tell what time is like here because when you look out what you think might be a window, you just see kind of nebulous, occasionally pink and purple space with stars. Sometimes it's orange and blue. Sometimes it's pitch black. It's just ever-changing, ever-shifting. And you don't know if that's because that's what the library is surrounded by and that's directly what's outside the window or if it's maybe just some kind of projection that you see when you look out what you think is a window. But one day, as we're going through our routine, you kind of feel a tickle in the back of your mind. Kind of like when you have a cell phone in your pocket and you're like, wait, did that shake? Did that vibrate? Did I hear a ring? And so you all reach for your journals, whether you have them in a bag or just on hand, and you flip it open to the pages with fresh handwriting. And it's just a few words, and it reads, Trouble in Sweetgrass. Contact Miriam Gim. Underneath the name, there is a drawing of a pale woman with long dark hair that's tied up and draped over her shoulder. And she wears sunglasses and carries a parasol over her other shoulder. So after you guys read and see that description, uh, what do Zen and Linda do? I think at this point, Linda's comfortable enough with like how it has worked in the past that she just goes like right to the book drop because she's pretty sure that that's what Zen's going to do too. Zen actually, like last time, tries to find Rail first because sometimes Rail is asleep. So they're not in the bedroom. And even though there's like probably a bunch of like maybe clothes in their blanket, they don't make their bed at all. They're like the type of person who has like five pillows on their bed. And so you probably <laughs> have to like dig around in the blankets just to make sure they're not under the blankets. Uh, but they're not there. Okay, well, I think Zen would gather up shoes for real and head to the book drop. <laughs> so as you guys head to the book drop, I think with Zen's wandering and Linda's book club and baking parties, you guys are probably kind of recognizable within the book drop. I like to think that the book drop is one of the more bustling places. There's definitely like a few more people there, like a low traffic bookstore, because I imagine it's kind of one of the only stable spaces within the library. Does that seem right to you guys? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So you have kind of different librarians and archivists who are working right now, and they kind of just like nod and smile. And as you walk in to that center meeting area, Rill is laying on a couch. Can't really tell if they uh, are alive or not. <laughs> so I think that Linda would like tiptoe over to Rill and give them like a gentle shake on the shoulder and say something like, hi, sweetheart, it's time to get up and hope desperately that you are in fact just asleep <laughs> just like their breath is so still like how do they do that but as soon as you kind of like touched them on their shoulder they just jerk awake and they're like eh. and they're just like oh uh hey linda i uh i happen to be taking a nap here as i as the journal uh rang i guess so i decided to lay here while i, I waited for you all Zen holds up the shoes and says, I got your shoes. Oh. And then they'd like look down at their feet and then it's like, wow, yeah, they definitely forgot their shoes. And there's like, huh, yeah, th thank you. I swear I put shoes on this, this morning, but, uh, but I guess uh, I either didn't or I lost them somewhere. Uh, I guess if you guys see any shoes behind random doors, they might be mine. 
The Eldritch monsters are wearing Rail's shoes. No! <laughs> <laughs> so they take the shoes and they sit up and put them on. And they're like, so how much do you guys know about what's going on? I think basically just the name and where we're going. I, I don't know. Maybe it's another world where I get to be a bard or another world with the, those big bird lion things or uh, I don't I have no idea maybe it's home do we have any information on what sort of world this is uh yeah let me just double check this real quick what is sweet grass uh so real flips through their journal and you do see they have a little bit more information than you guys do not much and they kind of skim through it and they're just like uh, it looks like Sweetgrass is a small town. Um, it's bigger than, than what Skullcrag was. Uh, Sweetgrass looks like it's a small town with around 7,000 people and... 7,000? Uh, yes, 7,000. Is that a lot? That is a lot. Wait, how many people were in your, your hometown? I don't know. I never counted them. <laughs> I mean, like, didn't you have, like, a, a census or, like, a bookkeeper or something to, like, keep track of your town's expenses or s- supplies or something? And she just kind of shrugs, like, probably. Do they know that Zen's, like, a princess? <laughs> <laughs> it might have come up once or twice. They've also never gotten the sense that she's incredibly responsible. <laughs> I think they would be like, uh, weren't you, like, uh, some kind of, uh, noble or something? She just kind of shrugs again. (laughs) How many people were in your hometown? Well, my town was, like, a beach city, so, like, a hundred thousand. It was kind of a a small space, so we we were actually, like, on the suburbs. The suburbs were were smaller, maybe, like, thirty thousand. Yeah, I'd say, yep, somewhere, maybe like 30,000. Little town. Yeah, so the 7,000 is a small town. Is then just like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. So Rill just kind of tucks away that piece of information for later, I guess. So, uh, yeah, it's like a small town, and it looks like it's summer right now, and they're having, like, a summer harvest festival, and it kind of lasts throughout June. The week leading up to the summer solstice is kind of like the big shebang. And uh, it seems like there's some people that have gone missing, which isn't really normal in this kind of town. And that's kind of all we know. That is Miriam contacted us and said that there's definitely some things that we as archivists should look at. Apparently she's kind of been a long time contact in the library and that we definitely trust her, I guess, whoever's in charge of this place. And they kind of like gesture vaguely uh, at the area around them. So I guess it seems like if she thinks it's something we need to check out, then we kind of trust her on that. Well, all right. I wonder if it's something we need to bring back or one of those things that, that Zen found is there. You do find a lot of a lot of horrifying things, then. <laughs> like oh, the, like the tentacles. Yes, yes, whatever those those things. Linda's like not a huge fan of Eldritch abominations. She read uh, Stephen King when she was too young, and she's just like <laughs> no. not into it at all. 
Yeah, I think Rill likes animals, so their immediate response is mixed between, oh, an eldritch horror or an octopus. And they're very excited to pet the octopus, and it is probably a couple of them have tried to eat Rill, and Zen definitely has to make sure that doesn't happen to them. That octopus has too many teeth. <laughs> and then Rill would just kind of like pat their legs down, which have pants on them. Not not Fresno <laughs> Nightwalkers, just but like regular just pants. Just regular pants. Yeah. And they're just kind of like look around at their seat and they're like, uh, it doesn't look like I have anything for you. So I'm guessing, you know, whatever you have, you'll get it when you get there. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm not great at being in charge. So, uh, I'm sorry. Don't worry. We'll figure it out. It'll be fine. You'll do great. And they're just kind of like, uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> I guess, uh, do you guys just go for it then? I think Zen is just gonna go for it. She's kind of secretly bummed that she didn't get to go on the last one. Aww. And so she's she's ready to go on this adventure. I know that you said, like, Zen gets a big sword, but it'd be, like, so funny if she got, like, a gun or, like, an assault <laughs> rifle or something. And she's just like, I don't know how to use this. But, like, Zen with a flamethrower would be, like, incredibly Aww. funny. It sure would be. <laughs> Yeah, I think Linda probably just goes to, I think she gives real a look like, I didn't have time to bake any stuff. I'm so sorry. Like, because Linda hates not having goodie bags for you all. This was like the rare occasion where she didn't have something freshly baked to bring. Oh, no. Real just like, this waves her off like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> so Linda has to bear that cross this mission that she didn't have any baked goods for anybody. <laughs> but but she's ready to go otherwise. She's like a go-getter. So That's the guilt tag for her, her spooky. Yeah, she didn't have baked goods. And she feels horrible about it. <laughs> all right. So you two step into the gateway. And by now, you know what to expect when you step into the darkness full of stars. It fully envelops you, wrapping around you like a warm blanket, simultaneously stifling and comforting. The void makes you its own, like you've been gently lowered and fully submerged into an ocean. Every particle of your being is stardust that rearranges itself to give you a new form. And then you blink, and all of a sudden, you are in a place you assume to be sweetgrass. Before you are a line of shops downtown, kind of like a low crowd. There's definitely people going back and forth here and there. Some are in a hurry. There's lots of decorations, like flower archways. It's probably because of that summer festival Rill had mentioned. And right now, the sun is casting an orange glow across this town. What do you guys look like? Zen has lost a bit of height, but still stands at an impressive six feet, and there's definitely something a bit off about her. Her snout is flatter, her features are softer, there are patches of soft skin interspersed with her scales. In short, she's just a little bit more human. But maybe even stranger than her appearance is the fact that she is fully clothed. More than that, she's actually concealed. She's wearing the sort of trench coat that makes it look like she has a watch to sell you and a wide-brimmed <laughs> hat to match. There is a sword strapped to her back. It's typical of Zen, but definitely out of place on Earth. So she's like Carmen Sandiego Zen. <laughs> Yeah. In short, she looks strange and dangerous, probably the sort of person a normal person would avoid, but she passes for human if one isn't looking too closely under the hat. 
Linda is wearing a novelty t-shirt. It's got a little like Loch Ness monster on it. She thought it was super cute <laughs> or, you know, it's exactly the kind of thing she would have bought back on earth. Like if she was like in a little gift shop, she'd be like, oh, that's cute. And she'd pick it up for, you know, going to the gym or whatever. She's wearing like a, a denim jacket over that. just like, like a cool jean jacket and a skirt and as usual, really sensible shoes, probably some boots, not necessarily like combat boots, but cool boots. And then she's got a real giant purse. It's very large because it holds her big knife and her shotgun. So she's trying her best to look inconspicuous. And she's like mostly got it. Like it's, it's not crazy conspicuous, but uh, this is definitely a little bit different for Linda. She's not usually trying to quietly smuggle guns next to a half lizard woman. <laughs> Excellent. Is it like a Louis Vuitton or is it like a knockoff brand? I think it's probably a Target or a DSW. That's more like Linda's speed. So even though you guys kind of like beamed into town, it doesn't really seem like anyone noticed. You see signs about it being like the summer festival. You see like lamppost banners and whatnot um, with like big peaches on them or they alternate with like a picture of a tree. Kind of as you look around behind you, you hear a woman's low voice address you. Oh, my, my, my. I don't suppose you are the associates I'm waiting for? Zen is freaked out by <laughs> this environment, by her fingers. Just she <laughs> is kind of confused and trying to sort of process like, what are streetlights? What is that fast moving metal thing over there? What is <laughs> happening? And so I think she's kind of like absorbed in that. Luckily, this is familiar territory for Linda. She can tell it's not quite Earth, or at least not somewhere that she's been on Earth, because there's kind of kind of a weird vibe about it as far as she's concerned. But it's like familiar enough. Like she knows cars, she knows stoplights. That's way better than like what the fuck is a tavern? <laughs> like what is a griffin? I don't know any of these. So she can see that Zen is freaking out, just kind of gives her like a reassuring grip on her shoulders and turns her around to where the voice was so she can see if this is in fact their contact. Yeah, so when you turn around, you do see a familiar figure. It is the woman you recognize from the book. She's wearing a long, dark dress. Her skin is is very pale, like almost translucent. Even in the sunset, she has like a dark parasol in her grip and sunglasses. And she kind of saunters over to y'all. And she holds out a gloved hand for you guys. And she kind of like, you can sort of see her eyes dart towards Zen and then dart towards Linda as she sort of like absorbs the two of yours appearances and I think when she's like up in front of Zen would uh, Miriam kind of be able to tell that Zen's like a half human half lizard person yeah okay so she sees that registers that also registers the expression on your face and she smiles sweetly with her hand extended and she just says a pleasure to meet your acquaintance. My name is Miriam Gim. Are you two with the library? Linda would definitely enthusiastically reach out and shake Miriam's hand. Say, oh, hi, uh, I'm Linda Baumgartner. Yes, we are with the library. And this here is my associate and friend. You'll have to excuse her. Uh, this is a little bit new for her, but she's doing her best. She always does. And I think Zen, in the midst of shaking off sort of the strangeness of this new place she finds herself in, will just like reach down, take Miriam's hand, bring it up to her lips. And... Oh my gosh. 
She's feeling a little off and she's not sure why, but... She kisses her hand as a greeting. Yes. And says, it's a pleasure to make your acquaintance. Miriam's eyes would kind of definitely registers with what Zen's gesture is and you can kind of see her lips upturn in like a playful smirk and she says a pleasure I'm sure we'll see whether that's true or not (laughs) you two were here for uh the tip I gave to the library correct honestly I don't really know what your organization is about but I know that they just want me to monitor this town and they give me funding for me to manage my businesses so honestly it's a good partnership that I would like to keep and so she kind of like pulls her hand away and saunters over to the door that she'd been sitting in front of you can't really see in the establishment because the windows are like tinted dark and she walks into this establishment and waits for you guys to like follow after her zen will go eagerly enough partly because like it will get her away from the overstimulation of a seven thousand person town yeah there's definitely like faint music playing people laughing and talking and shouting yeah Lots of kind of fruity, flowery smells. There's lots of flowers, lots of fruits and trees and whatnot kind of decorating the downtown area, which is like the very kind of quaint small town, like cobblestone roads type thing. I think the library, even though it's like obviously much more technologically advanced than she's used to, is still like quiet and strange enough that it's easier for her to adapt. But this is, this is Earth. Yeah, this is all at once, yeah. So she leads you in, and on the doorway you can kind of see like a logo printed on the glass door, and it says the Midnight Velvet. This place just like exudes class. Like it's like dimly lidded, but despite that, you can tell that this isn't the type of place where it's like dimly lidded because it's dirty. Primarily because when you step in, the floor is not sticky. It's kind of like a dark oak shininess to it. To your left, there is a intricately carved counter and a bunch of stools. In the back, you can see a wide selection of liqueurs and taps and wine. And to your right is kind of like dining slash seating area with booths. And you see a few people patronizing this place. You see a young man, the teenager probably, talking to a woman at the counter. Looks like he might be kind of like flirting with her, maybe. There is another young woman who's just kind of like mopping the floor of the seating area. There doesn't really look to be too, too many patrons. So Miriam turns to you guys and she's like, Welcome to my establishment, the Midnight Velvet. It's definitely a place that I'm personally proud of. I came to Sweetgrass on my own and started this establishment for wayward souls such as myself. She like puts away the parasol and like she continues up the stairs. Did you guys want to do anything while you were at the bar area? Linda's both slightly flabbergasted about Zen's complete turnaround from like, what the fuck is a car to like, hey, hey there, <laughs> how you doing? So she's like keeping an eye on Zen just to make sure that she doesn't do anything stupid because it was so abrupt. <laughs> and she's like vaguely suspicious that this lady is like some kind of witch or something like that. And also, this is definitely the coolest place Linda's ever been in. So she's feeling (laughs) a little bit out of place. Like, she and Zen have switched. She's trying to take all of this in and being like, am I allowed to be in here? Are they going to kick me out? So she's a little flabbergasted, really curious about what brought them here, slightly overwhelmed by how much cooler the place is than her. 
I think Zen is just kind of looking around at the other people in here, the staff and everything. Something about the way this woman said wayward souls kind of hints to her that like maybe these people are unusual in the way that she is unusual. So yeah, there's isn't really a move for this, but when you look around, you can't really tell anything super specific, different about these folks. Definitely when you walked in, though, the young man at the counter, he kind of pulled his gaze away from the woman he was talking to and kind of looked at you. There isn't any like discerning physical features that you could tell from the start. He just kind of seemed like a very like playful, rakish type before he returned his attention back to the woman. And then the young woman who was mopping the floor, she kind of had a completely different demeanor. She seemed more meek. Almost when she looked at you guys, it was like kind of a wide-eyed, almost deer in the headlights type thing before she like looked back down, just trying to like not draw attention to herself. Okay. Before Mirren gets too far though, she does turn around and she's like, oh, pardon my manners. I should have offered you a drink. Please, it's on the house. You two are my esteemed guests. Don't worry about the price. Tyler, can you take my guest's orders, please? And so the young man perks up and he does like a playful little salute and then turns his attention to you guys. Miriam just says, uh, I'll be waiting upstairs in my office. Just come whenever you're ready. And she saunters up the stairs. Tyler kind of just smiles at you guys like bright beaming smile. This, this boy is like sunshine and he greets you. Howdy, what can I get for y'all? Zen kind of watches Miriam head upstairs and says, I'll have whatever she usually has. What is the fanciest drink <laughs> that I can- <laughs> Martinis are pretty classy. Um, yeah, so he kind of like looks at you, glances at Miriam, kind of winks at you, and just like does finger guns. And he's like, one martini coming right up. What about you, miss? Linda wants, like, she's still suspicious. And she checks, I don't know, her watch or her phone to check what time it is. And it's officially five o'clock somewhere. So (laughs) she wants a margarita. Okay. You want that as a slush or you want that as the normal? And she says, frozen, please. And uh, a cherry if you have it. Absolutely. Coming right up, ladies. Salt or sugar? Oh, salt. Don't be an animal. <laughs> Zen's only half an yeah. animal. You. Uh, yeah, so Tyler goes on to making y'all's drinks. Do you guys kind of do anything in the meantime, or you just sort of wait? I think Zen will sit down and wait. Linda will sit down and wait, too. And I think she'll sort of lean over to Zen and maybe be like, is there something weird in here, or is it just me? She's definitely picking up some kind of vibe. Oh, no, Definitely. Tyler would kind of like make talk with you guys, make conversation. And he says, you know, it it isn't often that Miss uh, Miriam has guests over. What what are y'all in town for? We are, uh, we're writers. We are in town uh, looking into uh, this festival and uh, writing an article about it. Awesome. Uh, you know, honestly, we really don't get many people out here in, in Sweetgrass. Honestly, this is the best time to come in. This town is boring as heck. Maybe maybe not so uh, since yesterday, but generally it, it's a pretty good town. You gotta try the peach pie. That is our staple. What happened yesterday? Uh, the, the readers of uh, smalltownfestivals.blogspot.com would love to know. Like I said, we're, we're kind of a small town. Not much happens around here. Occasionally you get some runaways and whatnot. That's kind of what Miss Miriam here does. She takes care of us uh, different kind of folk. He winks at you guys. He says, yeah, yesterday, a couple kids from the high school, they went they went missing. There was a car that they were last suspected to be at. 
no footprints, no nothing. Leaving that car, just a deserted car. And yeah, no one knows where they end up. Cops can't find a trace of them or nothing. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Zen is just nodding around along like she understands all of these words. <laughs> <laughs> like car and cop and high school. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Poor Zen. <laughs> So right now we're in the downtown of Sweetgrass here and kind of up the hill is where the mayor's house is. There was a party there. So it was a couple high schoolers coming back down from the party. They drove down the hill roads there. It can be kind of a spooky drive. You know, there's no lights or anything like that. Uh, Sometimes you get some deer and whatnot that run out. Some people suspected that maybe they'd ran off to the forest or woods someplace, but can't find them. Search party went out. Not a trace. I'm sorry to hear that for your town, but thank you for filling us in. Sounds like a, an interesting time to be here between that and the festival. Definitely the time to party during our summer festival. And then he looks at the woman who's at the counter and he uh, winks at her. And then as he kind of passes you guys your martini and your frozen margarita with a cherry. She definitely is delighted about the cherry and rumbles around in her pockets to see if she has like earth cash that she's familiar with uh did they use like dollar bills here is this like enough earth like that they have dollar bills so out of character this is like it's basically earth but i'm not gonna say it's our earth because don't at me obviously they're not quarantining here (laughs) um and it's okay because covid is not a thing on this not earth um so yeah you probably have some bills but uh if you extend any to him he kind of like waves you off he's like no no miss miriam says on the house you know any friends of miss miriam are friends of mine should we take our drinks and go talk to miriam yeah i think so we grab our drinks and do that walk you do when you're holding a drink and you've got like your hand in front of it so you don't spill it and we walk up the stairs to go to her office Hello, and welcome to St. Fleur, where the city is modern, the fantasy is urban, and the faction politics are at an all-time high. Join us in Shadows of St. Fleur as we follow the wizard, Alistair Lockwood. Regret to inform you, I'm not a wizard. I am a master of the arcane arts. The scholar, Jeremiah Roderick Crawford. I'm an earl, you know, and you're a baron. Those words carry some weight. The wolf, Victor Margaret. Victor stands on the bridge in the cold. Fuck. The Fae who is known only as Silk. Um, do we know if this was a, you know, was a standard mugging? And the vamp, Alex Jarreau. Quite. Because the first time the door opens, I'm going to push her out. Through their experience in the city. Shadows of St. Fleur is an Urban Shadows actual play podcast with a majority LGBTQ plus cast playing characters finding their way through faction politics, all in pursuit of their own individual goals. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. The Eternity Archives is hosted, produced, and edited by Dorka, Kite, and Ziva. Find us on Twitter at, at @thearchivespod or online at theeternityarchives.com. Our intro music is Paint the Sky by Hans Adam, and sound effects are obtained from zapsplat.com. Additional music in this episode was composed by Will Savino, aka Music D20. Check out his work by pledging his Patreon at patreon.com/musicd20. Check out our show notes for more information and some helpful Monster of the Week resources. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Eternity Archives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. 
consider supporting us by telling your friends about us, or leave us a tip at our Ko-fi page, ko-fi.com slash the Eternity Archives. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Be gay. Roll dice. An LGBTQIA actual play podcast network.